1: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See
0: terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. The radical. Fundamental principles of freedom. Rational self-interest. And individual rights. This is The Yaron Brook Show. All right, welcome everybody to the Book Show on this... I, I can't keep track of what day It's Tuesday? It's Tuesday. It's Tuesday today. My uh, days are stacking up. Let me switch this to gallery view. There we go. Um, it, today's going to be fun. I've got with me my uh, co-author on three different books uh, and somebody who uh, worked with me together at the Anderan Institute for many years. I've lost count how many... Don Watkins, welcome. Uh, Welcome to the show. Hey, you're on. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been. Um, So we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about an essay. Uh, I put some links up online, both on YouTube and Facebook. I hope some of you at least have have read the essay. If not, uh, hopefully this will motivate you to read it afterwards. This is an essay called uh, It's Time to Build by uh, Mark Andreessen and um, just to tell you a little bit about Adrien, um, Mark was one of the founders of uh, Netscape. If you remember the uh, first real browser that, that that was commercialized, he has since become one of the most successful venture capitalists uh, in Silicon Valley. Uh, he was on the board of Facebook early on. You know, he's been he's become really one of the driving, moving forces uh, in um, in the Valley anything anything you want to add on on Mark?
1: uh no I and mean just he's always been a very thoughtful guy, so yeah. it's not surprising that he has some really interesting things to say about uh the world today um, i mean i I followed him for a long time but a good introduction just to kind of his early days comes from his co-founder in uh, the book the Hard Thing about Hard things which is a really worthwhile book to, to delve into.
0: And that's Horowitz. Yeah. Yeah. And the firm is called Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, that's the name of the, uh, um, that is the name of, I have no idea. Okay. Facebook's gone. Facebook's not working. So if you know anybody who's trying to watch us on Facebook, tell them to come over to YouTube because Facebook will not connect today. Oh, I know what's happened. Okay. Let me connect Facebook. once It'll take two minutes. <laughs> all right, and what I want to do, I want to do this, do that, I want to put it there, and there, and now I want to go, there we go, all right, so we're going to be, we'll be on Facebook in a minute, yeah, I mean, he he is, he's, um, I, I followed, uh, two years ago, he kind of, uh Dropped. Uh, now it's saying, "Sorry, we're having trouble playing the video." All right. So either way, I can't win with Facebook today. Uh, he 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 used to tweet a lot, and he used to, and he got into a lot of trouble tweeting with different people and tweeting his views. I think he got a lot of problems with kind of some of the leftists um, in Silicon Valley, and he stopped about two years ago tweeting, which is too bad because he was always interesting. Um, one of my uh, one of my uh, Many celebrity points at Pride is that he follows me on Twitter. Um, he's one of the, the few uh, well-known people who actually follow me on Twitter. I don't think that means anything uh, because they have a million things in their streams, but uh, he is there. So it, it, he wrote this essay, It's Time to Build. Uh, you want to give us a quick summary and then maybe what your impression was when you first, um, when you first read it?
1: Yeah, so I mean, his his jumping off point is the COVID nineteen crisis, and really the the really pathetic uh, and I mean tragically bad response to it in the West. And part of what he's arguing, or I think the core of what he's arguing, is that it reveals a much deeper problem in the West and America in particular, and the way that he puts that problem is that we've chosen not to build. And um, in many ways, he's echoing a point by another entrepreneur investor, Peter Thiel. And Peter's been making the point for the last decade that, like, we've seen a lot of innovation in the world of bits, in the in the computer industry, but we've really been stagnating, or at least we have not seen the kind of progress we would have expected, you know, 50 years ago in what he calls the world of atoms. So, if you're thinking about like building things, transportation, uh, construction, and uh, healthcare, everything that has to do with the world outside of your iPhone, essentially has been way there's been way less progress than we would have expected. And so what what COVID-19 has really revealed in a stark term in stark terms is that like we're having trouble producing not just things that are inherently difficult to produce like vaccines, but even very simple things like cotton swabs and hospital gowns. And so he says like this is a pervasive problem that COVID-19 is revealing that we see it in healthcare. We see it in the kind of state of our cities in manufacturing and education and transportation. There's really not been the kind of growth that we would have expected to see and that we really need if we're to live well. And, you know, he says, look, this is not because we lack technical ability or wealth. It's because we've made a choice. And I mean, when I read this, I think, part of why I think it's worth talking about is what I think he's really trying to do is frame the cultural debate. So um, one way to think about like, there, there's there's intellectual frameworks that really shape what we regard as problems and how we think about solutions as a culture. So, you know, if you go back to 2016, um, remember in the lead up to the election, this is before Trump really took off, everybody thought the issue was going to be inequality. What policies will fight inequality? What policies will create more inequality? And of course, Yaron and I, we were really looking forward to that because as you'll remember, Yaron, that's when our book Equals Unfair came out. Uh, But what happened was Trump came in and a core thing that he did was he reframed the conversation around this idea of make America great again. And so it was, no, what we should be focused on is are we... Improving American greatness, or are we headed for America decline and what I think Mark is doing is saying that like the cultural conversation really needs to be focused on is this are, are we for building or are we anti building mm-hmm. and that is if you could really achieve that, I think that 's important because that is the right a, 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 uh, i would say a right way to think about um, at least many of the problems in our culture. And I mean, just imagine if our policy debates were focused on not like, what is the, you know, is this uh, creating inequality? Is this, um, you know, uh, making America great again? But if the question was, is this pro-building or anti-building? Is this pro-builder or anti-builder? We would just live in a different universe. And so I think that's the core of what is so important about this essay and why, you know, I think there'll probably be areas where um, we diverge from Mark, but certainly there's areas where, um, I, my views uh, I, I at least try to go further, um, but at the end of the day, the core achievement is really to say like this, is, this should be our focus, and I, I agree with that a hundred percent.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I, that's right. I mean it was a good summary. I, I think that I mean my when I read it, I was a little less positive, I guess, because it, it made me sad um, for, for two reasons: One is because what he 's identifying is true that is the the lack of focus on building the fact that we don't want to build the fact that we don't believe in building but what made me sad is that while he's trying to reframe the debate he's not he's not able to conceptualize the problem and and, and he's not able to name even even come close to naming what it is that stops us is stopping us from building and of course, building is not the right way to conceptualize it. I think, um, because you could build a lot of crap, um, and you can build a lot of you can build pyramids, right? So you can build monuments, and you can build things that that don't make any sense. I think a better word would be progress, and, and building for the sake of progress rather than building for the sake of building. That's implicit in what he says, but you know, part of my. Part of what makes me sad about this is he's one of the smartest guys in the, in the, in, on the planet or, or in, in America, and one of the most able, smartest guys. And, he, and he's got the American sense of life, and that's what's beautiful about the essay. He's got this idea of, you know, we can do it, we can build anything, we can make anything. And yet, um, it ends at that level. It doesn't go any deeper, and it's not conceptualized right, I think. But I'm willing I mean, to be convinced otherwise.
1: I mean, I somewhat agree with that, but I think part of what the making it building rather than progress, um, because progress is more how I would, I just think of it generally. But if you're thinking about reframing the debate, part of what building does is it highlights the particular way in which we're not engaging in progress. And this is why I brought in Peter's point. So Peter Thiel's really focused on, we have an illusion of progress because in this one area of our, you know, if you call it like information processing capabilities, We've had enormous progress, but in, in virtually every other part of the economy, which you get is more visceral when you get building, um, we have had nothing resembling that. And so I think it, it highlights the problem in much more stark terms and uh, in a certain way is, is more evocative of what's going on.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I, what comes to my mind is a green new deal, right? Um that the danger is that the solution to this and he, and he leaves it open because one of the passages he says he's clearly not on the left. Uh, Andreessen is clearly not on the left, not sympathetic to the left, but in one of the passages he says, look, let's get beyond left and right. He he uh you know, and let's he, the right should do X and we'll get to that. The left, okay, if you guys think that the state could do all these things so that then prove it. Show me, and that just leaves it too open to things like um, the uh, the the Green New Deal and uh, and the building. Of course, he he is presenting the solution to uh, you know climate change as being nuclear power, but he's not, he's putting a question mark next to this, right? So he's not he's not definitive. It leaves it too open to interpretation because it's built for whom and for what, right? And uh, progress is for human beings. It's it's almost implicit in it. But I, you know, so I, I worry that while he's trying to reframe the debate, the debate can then be captured by people who uh, who have a very different view about what needs to be built than, than we do, or even what than what Mark does.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I, I think part of what's going on, uh, and I could be wrong about his intentions, um, but I think part of his concern, and you see this in the essay, is that people kind of have because of the whole phenomenon of tribalism in American politics, that people kind of shut down once things get divided among whether you put it right or left or Democrat, Republican. And he's trying to give a framework that sort of will not lead people to just default to what they, to the teams that they're already on. And so I think part of what he's doing is saying like, look, you do not have to buy in to a whole agenda to recognize that this is the core problem that we have to solve. Now, there, you don't necessarily have to be um, so agnostic about what are potential solutions. And I think part of, you know, is hopefully we'll get some, a chance to talk about more deeply, like what is behind this problem, because um, I think that starts to uh, address some of the concerns you have. But it's it's in effect saying like, all right, if we're focused on this problem um, and really taking it seriously, then you can't just default to what you're already saying because both sides have fallen way short on the issue of making america let's great for builders
0: <laughs> well it's it's making america great again in a proper sense not in the trumpian sense but in the in the proper sense of and he may, and and mark says this america was a land of builders that's what made america great is is the building and and it's interesting that in that paragraph he includes the microchip and the computer and the smartphone. So he's he's definitely got a conception of building that's broader than the physical building of transportation and construction. It's just that's where he sees the real bottlenecks and that's where he sees the real limitations placed in our world and, and you know Peter Thiel's a friend of his and I'm sure I mean this to a large extent this I say sounds like Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen kind of hashing this stuff together.
1: And so uh, to me, what was interesting, though, is like it should this idea of we've chose not to build um, like that is on the face of it should strike you as really weird or certainly like it did for me. Right. Because like you have something that should be on its face desirable. And I think if you polled 99 percent of Americans and said, yeah, should we build and have better cities and better hospitals and, um, you know, more opportunities and wealth for everybody. And people would say, well, I mean, of course we are. Um, but then what would it mean to choose not to do that? And, uh, you know, it's actually not that uncommon though, where you would get like universal assent that we should do something in the abstract. And then in reality, we make the choice to do something else. So, uh, you know, in foreign policy, uh, if you would ask people like, should we defeat you know, Islamic terrorism that's been directed at us? Or what? Uh, obviously it's not the best way to conceptualize sure. it, but should we defeat the enemies who are attacking us in the name of Islam? People, uh, Americans would have said yes. And yet we chose not to do it. And I think whenever you see that kind of paradox, what you're really seeing is a conflict between the issue that's on the table and deeper ideas that are hidden under the table. And so- you know, when Mark says we've chosen not to build, that's, I mean, it's a little metaphorical, but what we've actually done is we've made, we've made choices that make America inhospitable to builders and to building. Um, I wrote a piece on this and the way I started yeah, I was out was telling a story about, um, you know, when a 17, the South park movie came out. And there's a scene where the cartoon Bill Gates gets shot in the head. This is when he was the head of windows before he had become, uh, you know, a philanthropist. And I mean, the whole theater broke into applause. I guess this would have been 99. And I mean, seriously cheering uh, with a kind of ecstatic joy that was, I mean, it was very disturbing to me. Um, And then if you fast forward 20 years, we have, you know, a leading presidential candidate, Elizabeth Warren saying, break up big tech. And then we have a former leading presidential candidate, Ted Cruz saying, yeah, break up big tech. Like there's just even on the tech, uh, you know, the the Silicon Valley side, which is where I think people have a more positive attitude towards business. There's a very, there's a kind of underlying negativity towards builders. And then if you look across the culture, so, I mean, if you're talking about um, COVID-19, even to build a hospital in many places, you have to get what's called a certificate of need which you basically have to go and say not just, hey, I'm going to build this building and I'm going to try to win over customers. You have to say there's a need in the community for this uh, this hospital. And guess who gets to come along and say, yeah, we don't think we need this building? All your competitors, other hospitals. It's actually
0: worse than that. If you want to expand your existing hospital, if you want to add beds to your existing hospital, right. and this is why people ask, why is there such a shortage of beds in U.S. hospitals? given coronavirus, you need that certificate of need. So that certificate of need is not just to build a new hospital. Any expansion, any addition of beds to a hospital requires a certificate of need, which, which of course, restrains growth, restrains building, restrains uh, a, a hospital's ability to prepare for a crisis like coronavirus.
1: Yeah, and um, a, a, an example I use in the article, because I think it's really stark, is um, – The building pipeline capacity for oil and natural gas is really hard. I mean, the Northeast has basically been cut off from natural gas supply because New York won't allow pipelines to be built through it. Uh, The Keystone XL pipeline, which people have probably heard of, has been held up for 10 years. Whereas if you went back a century ago, they used to build pipelines like this in a matter of months. And that makes a big difference in terms of cost and in terms of the availability of energy. And people might say, all right, but aren't there problems with fossil fuels? And uh, we could debate that point. But even if you set that issue aside, virtually every wind project um, encounters the same sort of opposition. So there's, there's this opposition to building per se, not just to the particular projects. And then if you just get to our attitude of like, once people have successfully built something, how do we view them? And I know uh, ARI did something in the last few weeks about this idea of should we abolish billionaires? Um, the fact that that's even on the table is a question. Like, I mean, there you at least have to acknowledge that there is a a real, um, something that needs to be questioned in terms of our attitude towards building and builders. And so the it's the point is that it's not that we've chosen in the abstract not to build. It's that we've made America very difficult to be a builder and to build anything through all of these particular choices. And then, I mean, we could go on on the particular policies forever. I mean, if you get to the federal regulations, you know, I think it's something like 30 feet of shelf space, just in federal regulations of builders. And so the question then is, well, like, why have we done that? Like, what could explain the fact that we have made this, the country inhospitable to builders? And I think it comes down to two ideas. One is that it's wrong to impact nature and the other is that it's wrong to make a lot of money, or you could put it as it's immoral to produce and it's immoral to profit. And I mean, these are really variants of the same idea, which is that our moral obligation is to sacrifice, and so you know, at, at humanity needs to sacrifice to nature, and then individual human beings need to sacrifice humanity. But if you're not sacrificing, you're doing something wrong, or at least something suspicious, and that's something that policymakers have to control, restrict, or redistribute the outcomes. And once you've and and once you've done that, then how can we expect to benefit from building and builders? I mean, we've. Uh, uh, my my piece is called what was it called you know offhand something like we don't deserve builders.
0: Yeah, we don't deserve builders. By the way, it's on Medium. Just search uh, Don Watkins Medium. We don't deserve builders. I I highly recommend the essay. Um, he, I mean Don is bringing it up now, but he brings out the 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 the, the philosophical causes behind the phenomena that Adreesan is dealing with, which I think is. Is why they won't solve the problem unless we address. Andreessen can't really solve the issue that he's that he's raising without ultimately addressing the philosophical issues, in my view.
1: Yeah, and see, but um, that's why I'm so positive though about the essay because yeah. I think like that's what we should be debating, right? What is the cause of this problem?
0: That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes.
1: ChumbaCasino.com.
0: prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions
1: apply. See website for details. And what is the the solution? Um, but the hard part is getting the pro- the right problem on the table, right? Because you know, if the problem if the problem is seen as, you know, how do we keep out immigrants, which is essentially, sure. you know, the conservative agenda. Uh, for the last four years and really longer than that. Or if it's yeah. how do we abolish billionaires or stop inequality, then y- you can't even get to the level of explaining the problem because you have to say you're talking about the wrong problem. And um, so I think once we get the right problem on the table, and I don't think this is the only problem. I think it's part of a wider uh, set of issues. I mean, you know, ultimately, um, as Ayn Rand makes the point, that the real problem is unreason or yes. reason versus mysticism as she would sometimes put it but to take it away from the most abstract perspective i think if we're thinking about our economic lives certainly this gets to the core of it and i i would love to see a debate uh, about you know what are the right policies and part of part of answering that question is well what's the cause the ultimate cause of our hostility and um opposition to building
0: I mean, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. I mean, and how it's taken, and how people how people choose to debate it. I've seen already a number of articles, both on the left, and on the right, which are trying to deal with Andreessen's, um, uh essay, and they, you know, and they're, they're, they're full of the regular bromides that you'd expect. The right is accusing him of being too nice to the left, and um, it's all just regulations. If we just got regulations, we'd be fine. And uh, uh, applauding his, you know, don't outsource, kind of, you know, stuff. And the, and the left is, well, what about the, you know, it's it's it, it unless it goes deeper and unless it's framed in a deeper way, which is, you know, which I think has to bring in two things into into this essay. And if he'd done that, I would be happy. But I don't think he can, so I, I'm not blaming him because I don't think he has the, the tools to do it. You have to bring the individual in, and you have to broaden it to, to building for what and and for, for human flourishing, for individual human flourishing. That has to come in somewhere in order to frame the debate properly around building because otherwise the build for what uh, doesn't go anywhere. But I want to go back to the mall points you made because I think the the, the two mall points you made because I think it's really – it's really crucial. I mean, the the two are, we don't believe we should change nature. Um, is that just the radical environmentalist or do you see that as a more widespread cultural phenomenon?
1: I think it's almost everybody's default way of thinking. Yeah, think now, right. they'll push, sometimes people will push back against that because once it's made explicit, most people would say, well, no, like I get, you, you know, we have to have some impact on nature and everything like that. But if, you know, if you, there's kind of this default assumption that if we're changing nature, that's something we want to minimize. And it's something that's negative. Whereas, you know, so I work with Alex Epstein, uh, who you've had on the show and to discuss his book, the moral case for fossil fuels. And, One of the points that he makes, which is really an extension of a point that Ayn Rand makes, is that the way that we survive is by changing nature. It's by transforming it through human reason in order to make it more hospitable to human beings. And one of the reasons we have to do that is because nature uh, unchanged by human beings is incredibly hostile. And it's incredibly deficient. We don't naturally have the resources that we need in order to survive. We have to take the raw materials of nature and use the human mind to transform them in a way that's better. And so what we've actually done historically is dramatically improve the human environment. So, I mean, if you went back 300 years ago, we had dirtier water, dirtier air, and fewer resources. And the inability, you know, we couldn't enjoy nature. Nature was filled with many more threats. Like, you know, I mean, disease for one uh like the conquering disease is transform it's impacting nature you're either you're killing a bunch of mosquitoes you're killing a bunch of viruses um and the things you have to do like you know to uh, even take something like an antiviral or a, um i'm going blank a vaccine yeah. scaling the production of that means giant factories doing lots of things that are like really impacting the earth. And this is what we have to do in order to make it you could put it as to humanize our environment and make it a better human environment. And we've done, I think, an incredibly good job of that, but we need to do a lot more. But even you know, I work every day with people in the oil and gas industry. Um they they and and they say it sincerely like well we want to minimize our footprint or uh, they'll put it as you know we want to be good stewards and they mean it now they see well you have to have a trade-off you have to minimize your footprint but still be able to produce energy competitively and everything um, but they still have the ideal would be oh we had no footprint whereas our ideal is you make as big a footprint as is is valuable for human life um, the Question is not the size of your footprint, but are you are you impacting the planet in a way that's positive for human beings or negative for human beings?
0: Absolutely, and that's that's what I like about what you and Alex have done is in Alex primarily in his book, is frame the debate around human flourishing, around the human footprint, around in a sense the human well being and what it takes to be successful as a human being, and it, and then then you look at nature and you say. Okay, oh you look at the, what people call the environment, and you say okay well what is what is required to for human beings individual human beings to flourish to be successful to, to to live a good life and I think that's how in a sense, every debate about progress, about success, about building, about all this has to be framed in those terms of um, individual human flourishing uh, and and you said before that the key issue is unreason, you know, reason versus mysticism. And yeah, I mean the only way in which we can change our environment is by the use of reason. That's how we succeed in changing it. And when when we stop you know, when we stop changing our environment, there's a certain element of stop thinking. And if you stop building, it's like stop thinking. Stop thinking about how to improve life, stop thinking of how to make things better, stop thinking about how to how to move forward and there's there's a real crushing of of you know think i, I always use the the regulations the your regulations tell you um we're not we're never going to approve life extension so nobody's going to go into life extension we're, we're not interested in supersonic jets we won't approve it so nobody's going to go into supersonic jet although now they are and they're trying to push the regulatory envelope but it takes a huge amount of courage and effort just to do that, beyond the courage and effort of just building a new company and being an entrepreneur, which is huge, right, so now you have to also deal with a bunch of people with 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 a bureaucratic uh, bureaucratic gun so well it 's not
1: just that I mean what you said I, I agree with completely, but it 's even deeper, mm-hmm. which is that the whole model behind the idea that human beings are inherently destroying the planet through transforming it comes from a view that we aren't capable of being rational yep. so the it's it's the hostility to the mind is not just that you shouldn't use it it's that you can't use it that the human mind is not efficacious because what we actually do is we mindlessly consume the bounty that nature gives us and if we consume too much and too greedily that's how we destroy everything and so that the way that we're supposed to survive is not by using our mind but it's by living in harmony with nature which basically just means sacrificing. So it's their their whole model of existence doesn't acknowledge the mind and its power. And so the and 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 part of their whole view of why their agenda hasn't succeeded is because we're not using the mind. Yeah. And so what we really need to do is uh, because we're incapable of thinking, we need to take orders from Al Gore and Bill McKibben, and then we will live in harmony with nature, which in reality means die in harmony with nature because the only way we can live is with the mind.
0: Yeah, and they take for granted reason. They, they take for granted, sorry, progress. They take for granted um, everything that exists today is just here. It just came about. Uh, I remember reading once uh, these environmentalists who said, you know, we need this and this technology in order to achieve this and this goal. It'll come. The, the technology will just be created. It'll just show up when we need it. There's no thought to how, uh, how progress is actually achieved, whether necessary conditions for people to create, to build, to create, to make stuff. Um, and, and they just take it as metaphysically given that progress will happen in spite of their controls and progress that they like, not the progress they don't like, and that everything we have today just got here. It, it, it didn't require any specific skill set. It didn't require, for example reason being efficacious, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, um, in my article, one of the points that I discuss is, uh, and we've included uh, similar graphs in our books here on, but it's, you know, you have basically stagnation throughout yep. history and then this huge upward trend in human progress. Um, one problem with that graph though, is that the upward trend in the last 200 years is so massive that it's really drowned out that the last 2000 years were not stagnant no. in a literal sense, you had a period during antiquity where you had real progress now by modern standards it was you know slow and it you know it, we still didn't have widespread availability of affordable energy which really held back any kind of technology that could be developed but it was real and the trend was upward and life was starting to get better and what what you had was regress then into yes. the dark ages and you didn't start to really get any significant progress. I know our Christian friends will say, no, they invented some yeah, exactly. kind of yarn in, you know, there's a whole
0: revisionist, there's all a whole field of revisionist history, history claiming the dark ages were wonderful. A yeah. period of but, great progress. But it's disgusting. Yeah.
1: Objectively, uh, until you get really to the Renaissance and reason comes back to the fore, you start to get progress again. And the important lesson there, um, is regress is possible and progress isn't guaranteed, and we can see modern examples of it. I mentioned this is one of the, you know, the tragedy of Venezuela is tragic for them, but uh, we should at least use it as a reminder, or a tool for us to understand. Here was an advanced country that has basically gone back into the Middle Ages, and so, um, uh, Ankar Gate gave a really great talk a couple of years ago. Um, where he's really focused on the way in which central to Ayn Rand's thinking is what was the cause of the industrial revolution? What was the cause of this upward trend in human flourishing and real recognizing that that is such a crucial issue Mm -hmm. that you can't care to, uh, you can't claim to care about human beings as a thinker and not have a real thought out view on what made that possible and what will keep us from losing it. And I think the, you know, part of this focus on building, the reason why it's so urgent is precisely because it's something that can be lost. You can get regress. And the scary thing is that it can happen very quickly because a free society built on knowledge, the division of labor um, and the human mind ultimately is incredibly powerful and robust. But when there's if you want to put it metaphorically, a wrench thrown into the gears, it's so intricate um, that you you don't get a, it, it's not like the bell curve, right? You don't get a slow equal descent down. You, you basically get a complete breakdown of society. And part of what Atlas Shrugged mm-hmm. shows is uh, you know how quickly that can happen. And so that's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night. And one of the reasons why I want people thinking about what are the causes of progress? Because the alternative is not stability; it's regress.
0: Yeah, and the, and you know, th- I think there's a real fear that this coronavirus and the government's response to it could be maybe not the big wrench, but certainly a wrench into the uh, into into our ability to progress. I think I think we're in for you know just an economic prediction. I think we're in for a long period of stagnation after this. Maybe not that fast decline but maybe setting ourselves up more for that fast decline after a period where people really give up on progress because I think we're we're heading towards stagnation and it's going to be very difficult to get out of stagnation.
1: Well, particularly, um, I mean, many people I think right now can relate to the fact of if they had savings built up before this, they feel a great sense of relief. And if they had a lot of debt before this, this is probably a very tough time for them. Um, you always have to be careful drawing parallels between the individual and, and an economy as a whole because I think there are disanalogies to it. Um, but I think in this case, one of, the, one of the ways in which we're setting ourselves up for a long-term breakup or breakdown, uh, because I agree with you, I don't think this is something, it's not terrifying to me that it's going to happen the next year, but it's, there will be future crises mm-hmm. and we're, we're, going, we're further starving ourselves of the resources that you need to make your way through those those crises. Um, That's not the only issue, but I think it's a very visible one and it's a very measurable one. And, uh, you know, you look forward 20 years, um, it it becomes a real question of what do you do when, like, the government is uh, unable to even um, put together the debt to... Well, give these phony stimulus.
0: Well, part of the chat. problem is that these stimulus packages all condition us to think that the solutions are going to be government. So, I, my fear is we come out of this, and I think we that happened after 08, We 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 look to the government more and more for the solution for the for, for, for to build. And this is again my my challenge with framing it this way is is I think it leaves it too open for the government as the builder. And I think people are going to look to the government more and more as the solution to all our problems. Because, look, you know, when we got into coronavirus, we had to go to them. So why can't they do smaller things? And the left is already capitalizing in that. The left has always loved these kind of emergencies. They always look back to World War II when the government kind of took over manufacturing and said, oh, look, central planning worked in the war. And and now they're going to say, look – We couldn't have bailed ourselves out of coronavirus without the government. And look, they're always looking for these examples, and this is going to... And then, of course, the massive misallocation of capital, so that we're not getting any kind of healthy restructuring of the economy as a result of failure. We're we're, we're bailing everybody out, no matter if they're good or bad, everybody gets bailed out. So you just get this this dullness, this mediocrity that is going to go into the future with you know, at least Andreessen is calling for building. He's calling for, for, for being grand, for being ambitious. And, and that is what is being part of what is being killed in America, is that lack of ambition. He says we don't want to build, and that's the lack of ambition. And, um, and I think it's partially because of the environmental issues, but it's partially psychological in a sense that people are not ambitious. They, they don't think big thoughts about their own life and about the world around them.
1: I'm really glad you raised that because I wanted to mention that, which is, I think it's, uh, it's it's easy often to blame everything on policy issues. And certainly the regulatory state um, cannot be blamed enough for its role in it. But I agree. And, and Peter, I, I really uh, Peter Thiel really stressed this point. uh, And I remember being really um, taken by it when I heard him make it. But part of it is what you say is psychological. It's that we've, our, our vision of what's possible and what we demand of ourselves, uh, in terms of innovation has shrunk. Like it's not just that we haven't improved air travel. It's that nobody is set around saying, why aren't we going faster? Why isn't it more pleasant? Like they'll complain about it, but it's not, it's not treated as unacceptable. Like there's just this issue in life of what you regard as like, yeah, I'll tolerate that. Um, a comedian, the the comedian, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Alex and I are big fans of him. And he made this point that like, um, he doesn't tolerate the idea of, oh, I'm, I'm feeling tired. Like, I'm just going to push to it. No, that's an unacceptable feeling. Like you have to set up your life so that you can be productive, you know, at your highest level of alertness. Mm-hmm. But like that attitude towards life of I'm not going to tolerate like anything less than the best that's possible to me. Um, we've lost that. And if you've lost that, the regulation just sort of a it contributes to that in part, um, but b it just magnifies that, and so I think yeah,
0: and, set and, it in
1: bigger yeah. goals and, and not settling for less is crucial,
0: yeah, and a lot of times people complain not because they they have a vision of something better, right a vision they complain out of entitlement, right. I should be more comfortable on planes. How does that about? I don't know. Do, do we want supersonic? No, supersonic, that, that's noisy. I don't want that. Uh, you know, they're not willing to tolerate a, an actual solution. They just, and this is what, again, I think what uh, stimulus packages and all this government intervention does, is it dulls us and makes us entitlement. And part of that is actually something Jason Crawford brought up in his essay. It's that people don't know where progress comes from. So again, they kind of say, I just want it better without thinking about what that would require. And indeed, when you tell them what it would require, they say, no, 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 that's too much. I I don't want any of that because it requires changing nature. It requires uh, deregulating. It requires a lot of things.
1: Well, here's one thing that it requires, and this goes to your point about entitlement. It requires recognizing that the the right of a creation belongs to the creator. So take the example of people's attitude towards Facebook. What was Ted Cruz's complaint It was that you created Facebook and you're not managing it in ways that appeal to my ideology. Like I want you to promote conservatives. I don't want them to, you know, I want their ideas to show up the same way that liberals do. It is part of supporting progress is recognizing that Mark Zuckerberg built it. So even if they were uh, discriminating against conservatives, which I, I mean, maybe um, it's so hard to tell, but that's, that's his right, and it is uh, an abomination that a politician is going to control how somebody uses their property to, uh, to promote ideas. So part of yeah, part of the whole perspective is um, that y- you, if you want building, you need to respect the right of creators to their creation, including the profit, and including who they're going to discriminate against. Um, and, and all that goes along with that.
0: Yeah, and that's one thing, I mean, I have to say <laughs> about Andreessen, because I, I, there's one thing he's done in his life that I can't quite forgive him, uh, and that is when he was at Netscape, he was one of the people who wrote a who, who Netscape wrote the letter that got Microsoft in trouble with antitrust, and he, he went after Bill Gates on the antitrust issue. And as far as I know, he's never said, he, he's never apologized for that. He's never retracted that, and and... He alludes to that in saying here we want small companies, we don't want the entrenched. But here he, he really does it in the context of cronyism, but there was no cronyism at Microsoft. So it's, it's sad that, again, they, they, they don't want to go all the way with this. I mean, if you really believe in building, then you have to believe that Bill Gates built what he built and it's his. And, it, you know, the state, by going in and using antitrust, is one of the reasons we don't have more building.
1: I mean, I definitely don't want to defend him on this point because I agree with you. I um, but I do think it's important to at least understand that sort of their model of the world is like big equals ossified, right? Uh, and if if we want a dynamic place where you know the best buildings rise to the top, um, to butcher some metaphors, uh, <laughs> then you know a player who seems to be quote restraining trade is against that. Now I think that's completely wrong. Yep. I think it's it, we. It, We've written about it in our books. Uh, Ayn Rand wrote about it in her essays. I think it's totally wrong. Um, but, it's, but you can see how it fits his worldview of being pro-building, even though I think in the end it's not. And I think a lot of the threats to Silicon Valley really go back ultimately to what was done to Microsoft and the fact that everybody either supported it or um, regarded the, you know, the outcome as, okay, well, good. At least they, you know, they got a little check even though I think it drove Bill Gates out of the industry, uh, which is...
0: It did. A great tragedy. Back great a great tragedy for all of us. Um, so I want to get to the second moral point you made. Because, so one is people object to changing nature, changing the environment. The second is that we object to profit. And of course, we wrote about this extensively in um, Free Market Revolution. There's a whole chapter on the profit motive. But what is it about profit that people object Two.
1: well i mean i think there's different aspects to it but here here's one really important one which is that it makes you suspicious of motives and like why would that be well we you know we know that it's wrong to be selfish and you look at somebody who has a lot of money more than they quote need and you think well whatever they're doing it's not selfless. Like there's, there's something. And so therefore there must be something wrong going on. And, the, um, and then if you have a view of wealth that treats wealth as a fixed quantity, as something where one person's gain is another person's loss, which is how we're really encouraged to think about things. And it's part of what's wrong with the whole inequality perspective. Mm-hmm. Inequality takes a snapshot in time. And yes, if you look at however much wealth is in existence at one moment at a time, then, by definition, if one person has less of that total, another person has, or one person has more of that total, another person has less. And so, I think those kind of two perspectives together um, are go to the core of making us at least suspicious. And then, if you think about the uses that people uh, it, that wealthy people put their money to, um, well, some of it they you know goes to charity, okay, uh, but at the end of the day. Much of it, is, you would say, oh, they don't need it. And so Peter Singer, for instance, um, a famous philosopher, mm-hmm. loved by everyone, including the wealthy, go yep. figure. Um, I mean, basically his test is every dollar that uh, above what you need to keep yourself in existence could be going to save some starving kid somewhere. Mm-hmm. And if you're not giving him that dollar or giving her that dollar, you're effectively murdering yep. that kid. Um Now, very few people will go that far, but not because they disagree with the principle. It just makes them feel guilty about their own lives because they're not willing to go that far. So it stands in their mind as, yeah, that's the right way to live. And the wrong way to live is the way that all of us live. And so there's just a cloud of suspicion that hangs over anybody with wealth. And so whenever there's that suspicion, you can certainly find things to confirm it. Um, And it, it, it... distorts the whole way that you process the world and that you predict uh the impact of different policies
0: yes and i think i i think that the it it strikes me as i mean it's just mind-boggling that anybody holds a zero-sum world view of the world you know a static static wealth and um but it's so prevalent out there and it's another example of non-thinking right it's because I think on a perceptual level, the world looks like a zero sum. But as soon as you conceptualize a little bit, as soon as you can generalize, as soon as you know history, um, or you know how people who are really poor live, and you, then it just becomes so, such a discredited idea, so obviously false, that it just stuns me whenever I encounter it. But you're right, it's everywhere. And it's the underlying assumption of so much of what's discussed. Certainly the inequality debate. The attacks against profit because if they're profiting, I must be losing uh, because where's the profit coming from? It can't just come out of nowhere, right? So it has to be at somebody's expense. It is uh, – it's one of those ideas that I don't understand how anybody can actually hold and I don't think anybody can hold – honestly, anybody who's thought a little bit about it.
1: I think it's very similar to the idea that it's wrong to impact nature It's under the surface and it shapes our thinking, but once it's made explicit, yeah, then I can drop it. But the problem is that I don't think you can – I think one of the reasons why it sticks so much is the perspective that wealth is created and that we can have mutually beneficial trade – that, is, that doesn't integrate with the view that we're either sacrificing ourselves to others or others to ourselves. We have this package deal of how we can relate to other people. they would either you gain at my expense or I gain at your expense. And so where would the idea of trade fit? Well, it doesn't fit because those aren't the only two options. But now think, well, how do i fit in a view of wealth and a view of money well it has to fit in one of those two categories and so the only way that you can kind of conceptualize a view that says one person's gain is another person's loss is if you have this fixed view so i think it's it's really our lack of an understanding of the principle of trade uh and in this in the deep widest sense Mm of it um it's the view that one person has to be sacrificing for another that that's the only model of human relationships that ultimate, ultimately explains why we tend to hold on to this idea that that wealth functions that way
0: and again, that's an idea we explore pretty deeply and pretty pretty extensively in free market revolution, and the you know the idea that trade is such an essential to understanding. What it means to be an egoist and what egoism means and, and how a rejection of egoism ultimately leads to rejection of, um, of trade, of, of the whole concept of, you know, win-win relationships and, and, uh, and uh, where, where there's no sacrifice involved. Um, good. So we've got, let's see, we've got a few super chat questions One on Andreessen, so I'll take that one first, and then we'll see if if you want to add anything about the Andreessen essay before we take the others that are not really related to the topic. So why is someone as smart as Andreessen seemingly blind to the clear essential cause for the lack of building being government controls? I mean, I don't take him as being blind to that. I, I think he understands that completely. I think what he's trying to do in the essay is bridge... He's trying to appeal to as wide an audience as possible and trying to say, you know, let's think about this. And then so he's not trying to hammer people over the head with the idea of government controls and therefore turn off people who disagree with him. He wants to start the debate in which this will come out as one of the issues.
1: Yeah. And I'll just add a broader point, which is whenever you find yourself wondering, uh, how can a really smart person not see this obvious point? It's possible that the point is obvious and that they're messing it up. I find it's much more usual, particularly if they're not just intelligent, but they're intelligent in a in a, uh, a non-theoretical way. Yep. Um, I, it's, the point probably is not that obvious. And you know, uh, to people who have read Ayn Rand, part of why she's incredible, she can make a difficult point seem obvious. And then you spend the next thirty years of your life trying to figure out how did you know how did, how do you really understand this this point? Um, I think it's a valuable it's valuable to have the perspective of uh, if I think an idea is obvious and it's not um, self evident that is I cannot you know sense it mm-hmm. through one of my senses it's probably more tricky than I think um, and even something like that regulations or play a core role here. There's something obvious about it. Um, but it's, if you delve into any of these debates, uh, you'll hear other plausible stories about, you know, well, why is healthcare so bad? So we're blaming regulation. Well, doesn't it seem to work really well in other countries that have even more regulation? And there's a, there's a lot to say about that, but you at least have to think, well, then it's not quite as simple as I might've thought.
0: Yeah. And this idea that government controls are bad is an idea. A lot of smart people reject right? A lot of smart people think government... So it's not about being smart. It's, it's, you know, I think Andreessen is better than this because I, I do think he has generally, a, a generally he's pro-markets and pro... Um, not completely, not as consistently as I'd like. But there are a lot of people in, who are not pro-markets and to assume they're stupid is a bad assumption. There's some very smart people out there who are wrong. But... and it, and, and part of the issue is That these issues are complex. Sometimes they're dishonest, and sometimes they're just mistaken because these things are not uh, self evident. None of this is self evident. Um, I also think that Andreessen is interested here in something, in a question that's deeper, and he, he implies that. And that is even if you assume the government controls are stopping the building, why do we have the government controls? Is it just regulatory capture? That's one option. A lot of libertarians argue that, and Andreessen mentions that in the essay. Or is it that we've, as a people, as a culture, lost the interest in building, going back to the issue of ambition and motivation that we talked about before, and therefore we support those controls. So to get rid of the controls is not just about a political agenda, it's about an agenda to change people's ambition, to change people's vision, to change people's attitudes towards building. So it's a He's striving for a deeper. He's striving for a deeper reason. I don't think he quite gets there, but I think he's striving for something deeper than just saying saying it's politics. Why do we have the politics we have? Which you, you should always ask yourself when you're tempted to say it's politics. Why do we have that? I always hear, "If only we had term limits. If only we got rid of these corrupt politicians and had those corrupt, you know, the, the other group of politicians." It doesn't matter. It, it it just like it didn't matter fundamentally to anything that Trump was elected or it didn't ma- doesn't matter fundamentally that uh, even Reagan was elected long term as good as Reagan was in some things it didn't matter because it's not about the politics it's about these deeper issues um, all right anything else you want to say on Andreessen before we take a bunch of various questions
1: I mean the only thing I'll say is that uh like take seriously like you know reframe the issue in your own di- in, in your own discussions with people like like this is the central economic issue you know that America faces and even wider than that because it's part a cultural issue what do we value as a culture what do we regard as important one of my favorite paragraphs is where he talk about, we should be asking people what are you building yeah. and like you really should. And and I mean, a lot of our friends, that's in effect how most of our conversations start. You haven't seen each other. And it's like, Hey, what have you been building over the last year? Yep. And that's really, uh, if that becomes at the center of our cultural lives, a lot of good stuff follows, even if there's disagreement about all of this other stuff. Now in the end, you can't, there's, there's certain reasons why if you don't get the fundamentals, right, you can't have that kind of culture. But, um, it, you know it starts with putting that at the center of the agenda and each one of us can contribute to that by making it the center of our own agenda
0: yeah it i just it just reminded me of something that you know in the uh i remember when I was living in California and we had uh you remember the drought the big drought you know and you weren't allowed to wash your car and you weren't allowed to do all kinds of stuff and it, there was literally there were literally police that would go around, try to catch people who were watering their lawns and things like that. And uh, California, I mean, this is an unbelievably rich place. There's an ocean there. Um, you know, there's something called desalination. Uh, in the old days, they thought about building a canal from Northern California, to, from, the, you know, from, the snow, from where the snow is down to the south. I mean, people thought big Thoughts. I mean, Oregon has, like, way too much water, right? There's way too much. It rains all the time in Oregon and Washington. Why don't you build a canal for It's just nobody thinks big thoughts like that, big ideas when it comes to kind of... I was a civil engineer in a previous life. Hard for me to believe that, but it, I was. And there are no civil engineering projects. Nobody builds dams. Nobody builds canals. Nobody builds... Uh, even desalination plants are really rare. There's I think there's... One big one in San Diego, and that's why San Diego didn't have a drought. Isn't that amazing? You build a desalination plant and there's there's no drought. It didn't rain, but there was no drought um, because it's not – rain is not the only source of water. So it's things like that that people don't even think of. They'd rather see a bunch of cops walking around checking to see if people water their lawn or not. All right, let's see. So we've got – one here about Roosevelt Care. Uh, Don, what's your take on the news cycle effect on Social Security? If we can't produce enough wealth, but our debt to seniors keeps increasing, what happens next? And he well, says, I mean, Thank you for Roosevelt Care.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Uh, I mean, we're going to find out pretty soon because uh, uh, so, the way that uh, Social Security works is it's not paid out of the general tax fund. It's it's paid by payroll taxes that are specifically set aside for it. And once the fund is empty, and that doesn't just mean empty of income tax, it means empty of the IUs that were put in there in order to pay for the other uh, other government spending programs. Once that's empty, legally the program can't pay out full benefits. And so basically one of two things has to happen which is you have to reduce benefits or you have to increase taxes. And so, I mean, basically what's going to happen is some combination of those two things. And, um, you know, we went through this in the early 80s under Reagan and under Greenspan, which I'm sure is a story uh, we could get into someday. Um, But this one will have to, I think, be much uh, harsher. um, And uh, I don't know exactly how it's going to play out. Part of it depends on whether or not they try to deal with Medicare at the same time, which, um, you know, they might've socialized medicine by then. So who knows, uh, but it will be, it'll be very ugly. Um, and you know, part of what is part, part of what is worrisome is what's going to be the state of the stock market. Because, you know, like my parents just fully retired, uh, a couple months ago and, you can imagine what it's like to see your whole retirement net worth uh, go down by, Lord knows, you know how much virtually overnight. Now, if that if we're in that kind of state, and people start playing with social security benefits, now I mean the last people who would be affected are people already on it. Um, but I think it's I think it's going to be ugly because what the government has created is a literal zero sum game, yep. and that's that's the tragedy of it.
0: And right now you've got 20 million people unemployed who are not paying payroll taxes, which means that Social Security fund is being depleted right now. Uh, any expectations they had about employment, about taxes, about raising money is all gone out the window. Any kind of recession, and if it's prolonged, if unemployment stays high, uh, is, is devastating to Social Security, which was already in trouble before this even started. Now it's just going to accelerate its decline. Um, but, yeah, I agree with Don. It's, it's, there's no way out other than to raise taxes, reduce benefits, or means test, which is maybe what they do, is that if you have X amount of savings, you get zero. And uh, you take out the entire upper middle class and wealthy in America. You don't give them Social Security. You give it to everybody else. And then it becomes a straight welfare program. Uh, and at least there's a certain honesty to that. But um, But that is... That is, I think, those are the only solutions possible. Um, any thought about expanding on this theme for a book? There are tons of great examples of why we don't build anymore that could make it into a book. Now, Don and I already have one idea for a book, so now you've got another one. It's um...
1: Yeah, the, the thing I like about our idea that we're not going to tell anybody, though, is that it's not time-sensitive.
0: That's right. We can I mean, it is
1: in the sense time. of the world would need <laughs> it. Uh, uh, no, I, I mean, I agree. I think this would make a good book. Um, I think, you know, I mentioned Alex's The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, I think, gets one a, a big relevant piece of it. Um, but a wider perspective on, you know, progress in production, uh, I think would be enormously valuable. And, mm-hmm. you know, Yaron and I aren't the only people who are allowed to write books, uh, on objectivist ideas. So, uh, I and, hope,
0: and- uh, And I will say this, one of the more encouraging trends in the intellectual world out there, and there are not many encouraging trends in the intellectual world out there, is there is a group of writers who are writing about progress. And this is why I thought progress wouldn't have been that far of a reach for for Andreessen to use. Uh, People like Matt Ridley, who uh, wrote The Rational Optimist, which is a book I'd recommend. I mean, all of them have flaws because they're not objectivists, but they're really damn good. For not being, you know, even even somebody like Steven Pinker, uh, Enlightenment Now, and, and uh, Better Angels of Our Nature, um, uh, what's his name, Noberg, um, what's his first name? Jonah. Jonah Noberg, who's a Cato scholar and who is, um, who is Swedish, and he's got a book called Progress, which is really, really good, and, and you, you know, he's been influenced by, by Rand, and I, I just interviewed uh, Matt Ridley about his new book about innovators, which I think is excellent. So there's a lot of people thinking about this issue, and part of what stimulated the thought is, I mean, really two issues. One is the fact that it seems like progress is halting, at least in the West, and and progress has slowed and economic growth has slowed. And second is that we don't really have a good final um, explanation for why we got progress to begin with. Right, what happened, and and, uh, and and that still, you know, to me that's the more interesting question, right? That's the, that's the more important issue, uh, is to figure out what happened so that we can so that we can mimic it.
1: Oh well, yeah, and so we would be remiss. You mentioned uh, Jason Crawford wrote a really good uh, essay on uh, Andreessen's uh, essay, but he also this is part of his project Roots of Progress, and Jason has done an amazing job at just putting out really good content um, delving into just these kinds of questions and going deep into the data and writing really eloquently about them. And he's building an audience with exactly, you know, the future Andreessen. Mm-hmm. So um, I think if you, I'm sure if you Google roots of progress, Jason Crawford, uh, you'll find it, but I, I highly encourage people to, to check that out.
0: Yeah. I think it's a really, really important, important project and, and uh, you know, f- People need to understand where progress comes from, that it's happened and the extent that it's happened and uh, and w- what is required to sustain it. Um, all right. Do you think we are heading for a Great Depression? <sighs> I mean, I, I guess mean, I would say it depends on what you, def- what you think of a Great Depression. Do I think in a short run we're going to see people barely surviving, uh, you know, rates of poverty go up, um, and unemployment stay at, you know, high teens for a prolonged period of time. I actually don't, not in the short run. I think we'll get there, unfortunately. But I think in the short run, I don't expect that this is going to be the cause of it. Uh, Partially because, and this this will sound weird, but it's true, but because... You know, there is a certain effect that the government flooding the system with money has in the short run to prevent this Great Depression. Now, what I think it does is it keeps building towards much greater catastrophe in the future. Um, But one of the problems with the Great Depression, one of the causes of the Great Depression, is that the Fed at the time actually starved the economy of, of, of money. It actually helped shrink... The amount of money that was in the economy caused people to, to literally hoard not to invest not, and because, they, because money was just short supply, which was, which was caused by the Fed. The Fed is doing the opposite now, which I think is the – if you're going to have a Fed, and I'm against having a Fed, it's what it has to do. Um, and I think that will prevent a Great Depression, but it only sets it up because anything the Fed does is bad. By definition, it only sets it up for some greater catastrophe in the future.
1: I mean, I I can see the value of these kinds of questions in one sense, but I don't like them, Um, not because it's illegitimate to try to foresee what's happening in the future, but it's the the kind of questions that ask, like, are we headed for this or that are often too passive. Like, the issue is, what do we have to do, not just to avoid a Great Depression, but to make things better? Like, that is the builder mentality of, like, we, uh, you know, we actually are efficacious. We're not sitting around passively waiting for the future to happen to us. That's part of the perspective. Well, how do we make a better future and it's build, but then it's make that more specific. So it's like, what are the things that we need to do in order not to go down that route? And I think that's the kind of question that, you know, I find um, more interesting, more helpful, more empowering, because what if you're, what if you're on Zanzaro was yes. (laughs) like. All right. Well, maybe maybe it would change your investing advice. Um,
0: yeah, I think that's what a lot of people want from me is is they want to buy, want to know what stocks to buy or to sell. Right. Um, but yes, I I think that's right. And 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 really, things are going. Let's let's put it this way: things are going to get worse before they get better. And the only way they're going to get better is if we and the better people in the culture do certain things. Otherwise, they'll only get worse for a long, long time, and and we'll get. What, what Don described earlier is, is, is an end, a decline of civilization, a real end to civilization, which is much bigger than a Great Depression. The only way we can turn all the bad stuff that's happening into one day returning to progress and success is with the right ideas. And, and, and the, the key is to be active – in reframing the debate, presenting good ideas, challenging bad ideas, and being engaged with the culture. So, as things get worse, people will start looking for alternatives. We become one of those alternatives. So, as small as we are, maybe right now, if things get much worse, people are going to be desperate, and they're going to look for other other ideas and radical ideas because they'll what they'll be open to radicalism, and. Um, we need to be there and we need to be alive and thriving and producing and building and creating so that we can offer something as an alternative.
1: I mean, I think part of the reason that we've seen, I think part of what happened with Trump um, is the breakdown of kind of the old you know, tribal categories and there's a reforming of them. And part of what that opens the door for is a reframing instead of a reforming of tribal categories. It's a reframing of what are the right ideological fault lines? Like what are the real issues and what are the different alternatives with regards to those issues? And so this is part of, part of why we should be interested in people like Andreessen who are trying to set an agenda is that that what, whatever catches on is going to determine where this kind of very fluid uh, you know state of the culture is I mean it's interesting because we're so ossified in the tribal categories, but there's a lot of fluidity and how do we conceptualize it and turn it into a more intellectual set of agendas. Um, and I think you know there's an, there's a real opportunity in that, and that's why it's like you know be focused on trying to to frame these because um, what we bring to the table should be, the a clarifying framework because it's one that's actually consistent with reality. It has the best ability to help people understand the world around them and therefore govern themselves in the world. So it's you want to provide the best framework and like that's your best chance at success.
0: All right, let's see a poll taken by USA Today shows that 80% of those polled agree to stop immigration to stop job competition. I guess this is uh, Trump's latest initiative. How does this affect the economy? Will it become more popular? And the moral implications?
1: Uh, well, I mean, that's really simple. I don't really know how to code. So what I'm going to do is I want a policy that bans any coders from coming and living where my customers are and competing with me. What's the morality and impact of that? Well, <laughs> It means that my customers have to have a lousy coder, actually a non-coder. Yeah. It's the same principle. Like, it, It's immoral to try to gain success at other people's expense, and it doesn't work. It just makes everybody poor. It doesn't make me a better coder or my customers get better coding. It just means that nobody is able to achieve the benefits of the human mind.
0: I mean, immigration from a purely economic perspective is a massive net positive. Now, that doesn't mean some people don't lose their jobs. It doesn't mean that some wages don't go down. Some do. But that's what competition is. If you're against bailouts, if you're against uh, saving companies that can't compete against, then how can you be against you know, some people losing their job because somebody else can do a better job than they can? And by doing that, by the way, raising everybody's standard of living because the, the the better people we have – the more productive people we have, the better companies we have, the more productive companies we have. the more freedom we have, the better everybody is. So I think it's just it's a barbaric approach. Um, it'll hurt us economically in significant ways. Uh, you, you remember that most of the immigrants we accept today as legal immigrants are um, people like high-tech worker, workers. Uh, uh, Was it fifty percent of all founders of startups in Silicon Valley are immigrants? Uh, it's, just, it's just suicide. It's basically suicide. One of the things that have made America great, like it or not, is the fact that we have been this country that's been so open to immigrants and embraced immigration and brought in the best and the brightest at whatever level, whatever kind of profession they have, um, into this country. Certainly brought in the ambitious, the people who care about their own lives and want to make their lives better. And the moral implication is... I mean, it's a massive violation of rights. It's a massive violation of my right to employ the best qualified person no matter, no matter where they live. And it's a massive violation of the people who want to come here's rights. So uh, it, it's just a moral travesty. And Trump has always wanted it. And to use the coronavirus as an excuse. I mean, it's such a smart political play. I have to, I have to admire Trump's ability to know what to do To reinforce his base constantly He's like the tribal leader Who the tribe keeps drifting away from him And he does something there, And they all rally around him And it, and he's so brilliant at doing that um, But it is so evil uh, And then people wonder why I dislike him so much It's because of things like this um, Alright, uh, here's a question for you And then, I'll, then there's an oil question for me I guess Well, maybe, no, maybe you can answer the whole question better than I can. I don't know. We'll We'll see. see. Uh, So here's the the writing question. I think stories communicate more powerfully than nonfiction, any thoughts. Do you have any plans or know any authors planning to focus on fiction, uh, objectivist, so uh, on fiction. So from an objectivist perspective, I guess he means.
1: I mean, that's basically what I do with all of my free time right now. So I have a novel that, I I don't ask me when it's coming out, but it's with uh, agents right now. And uh, so that I'm working on Uh, don't expect Atlas shrugged and not just in terms of quality. That's just not what I'm interested in doing. I'm interested in what my problem is. I find most fiction, whether on the screen or in books, boring and not, you know, not good enough. Um, And, I'm not, And so my goal is just create something that I would find far more interesting. So cool. um, my ambitions are at that level, not how to compete with Rand, Hugo, and Dostoevsky. Um, and uh, so I am definitely, definitely working on that. But I still put myself – I'm in the not quite amateur but not quite professional category yet.
0: So you mentioned boring on the screen, which reminded me of something unboring. Have you, have you seen Fauda? No. You haven't seen Fauda? Mm-mm. You should you should try Fauda. See if it. I mean, you have to read subtitles. That's the only downside. I don't mind that. Okay, so so try Fauda. I think I think uh, I think it's. I haven't, one of the- I haven't
1: even seen Parasite yet,
0: so. Oh, you can skip Parasite. Yeah, you haven't heard my review of Parasite.
1: I saw that it, but I haven't seen it, so I didn't want to see the review. Yeah, you
0: shouldn't. But it's. I mean, you should since you wrote a book called "Equal is Unfair." you should see Parasite, because that's the theme. The theme is the opposite, right? The theme is about inequality, to a large extent. And it's beautifully done, right? Visually, it does the inequality. I mean, it it shows you people living here and, you know, people living here and people living here and and what that means. And it plays with ups and up and down, upstairs, downstairs, uh, really effectively. So you should see it. But no, uh, Fowder is this TV show on Netflix. Uh, Season three is out. Uh, Revi Tal and I, my wife and I, you know, you can't stop watching it. That's the problem because it's so suspenseful and it's so dramatic. And it, and we've got the two final episodes of season three right after this. That's what's, um, that's what I'm heading towards. But it's a, it's an Israeli show. And it's how do you
1: spell it, Yaron?
0: Fauda, F-A-U-D-A. It's a word in Arabic. It means chaos. All right. And it's about the special forces team, Israeli special forces team. That uh, infiltrates the West Bank as Arabs. They speak Arabic. They look out, Ara- and both the human conflict and the action conflict. It doesn't. Suddenly, for, for, season one doesn't get into kind of the uh, politics of it. It's more about good guys, bad guys, you know, uh, and and and. But it's it's about as intense as it gets. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Um, All right, can you explain what's currently going on in the oil market? If you saw yesterday, Don, oil sold for a negative price.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you you probably can explain it better because it really has to do with the way that the futures market works and the fact that uh, people who want to trade – in oil, don't necessarily want to take delivery of oil, but if you want to take it from there, you're on.
0: Well, the I'll, I'll say, let me explain it without futures first, because I think you can you can kind of understand it easier without getting into the futures first. There, there are three issues going on right now with oil. One, there's been massive overproduction. And by the way, overproduction is not something that occurs in a free market. <laughs> overproduction is a phenomena of politics, and and overproduction in this case is a consequence of the fact that the Saudis and the Russians uh, both wanted, wanted, to dominate, wanted to dominate the oil space. They couldn't agree on a price, so they got into a, a production war. And at the same time, both have an interest in hooding the oil production in the U.S., uh, fracking, which is, a very, which is relatively expensive to do. Saudi Arabia's cost of production is really low. Russia's is not very low, but they were willing to fight it out um, because they, they need scale. Uh, they need go both a good price and scale. And what's happened is they flooded the market with oil just at the time as because of a global recession, depression. Nobody is buying oil. We're not driving. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but very few people are driving. There's no demand for oil um, across the world. Demand for oil has dropped by 33%, which is just an astounding number. Uh, in one month, in, in one and a half months, 33%. So demand plummet while supply... It just went amok. So prices of oil went down. Now, what happens when you get that is people start buying oil, storing it, with the idea that one day oil prices will go up, and then they'll sell it. So they buy it now cheap, and then they sell it in the future at a higher price. Well, now we're at the point where all the storage capacity is taken, right? So all the – all the all, everybody storage is expensive. You have to have a facility – you have, to, uh, you have to build something or you have to rent something. Uh, and the storage capacity is gone. So now you've got all this oil out there. N- nobody wants it because they can't store it. They can't sell it to anybody to use because the refineries don't want it because they don't want to refine because there's just, again, not enough demand. And it, essentially what's happening is people are paying other people to take the oil off their hands because they can't afford to store it right now. That, I mean, that's in a simplistic way. Now, what's actually happening is that there are futures contracts that require delivery, and usually what happens with a future contract is you don't actually accept oil delivery. So it says, I'll accept oil at 40 bucks in, in a month, and then the month arrives, and, you know, the guy's willing to ship you the oil, and, you, you, you know, you've already paid the 40 bucks, and you don't want the oil, and usually what happens is you flip it into another futures contract, you know, so you don't take delivery, you promise it into the future. But that market is frozen up, and they can't flip those futures. So they're stuck with accepting the oil, so they're basically paying people to take the oil off their hands, which is just bizarre, strange, and it's, 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 only politics could create this.
1: I mean there is one other dynamic which is just that it's very hard to shut down the supply of oil because of the way that oil wells work so it's not like you can just yep. stop you know stop your well uh, you can stop drilling new wells um, but closing down the existing ones so you're still getting stuff coming onto the market that uh, is very ho- it, it takes time to turn around.
0: Yeah and the difficulty for frackers this is why you know cuz there's a sense in which cheap oil it's great, right? We all get a drive for cheaper, and people who use oil for energy, all forms, now get to use it uh, much cheaper. But at all prices, at 20 bucks a share, frackers, frackers need oil to be at about 40 bucks a share, my understanding, and they're losing 50%. And the, and Don is right. They can't just stop the fracking. They can't just stop pumping the oil. So right now, they're selling into the market at below the cost of production, which is hurting a certain portion of the US. economy, but it turns out that a, a lot of investment, a lot of employment and a lot of, um, a lot of economic growth was generated by the fracking business. And when, if that shuts down, this is why Trump is trying to negotiate this deal to raise prices, which is blown up in his face. Um, you know, without fracking, Texas takes a big hit, but so does the rest of the economy. Um, even though all prices will be cheaper. And. Yeah. Well, but
1: see, you want, you want prices to be cheaper because the cost of production has gone down. Yes. Uh, and because that's, a, if you want to put it, sustainable low price. Um, when you get a p- price crash from the dynamics that you talked about, you can gut your producers. And that, and I mean. It has long really- term
0: horrible consequences.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I think in America it means that the big guys ultimately come in and consolidate, but that's bad policy wise because the big guys tend to support environmentalist policies that are, uh, very, not all of them, uh, not all the companies, but, um, a lot, it's a lot of these independents and mid-sized companies who have really fought the good fight against environmentalists. And so I think it can have bad policy consequences as well as bad economic consequences. Yeah,
0: definitely, definitely true. The, 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 you know, in, in, there's a sense in which short term, particularly given the corona crisis and and maybe, you know, it's 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 helpful to get, you know, cheap oil is going to get Chinese production ramped up faster than otherwise. And that's not a bad thing when production is shutting down in the West. So but yes, long term, it's a disaster for the reasons Don mentioned. It's it's bad uh, for the U.S. It's bad for policy. It's bad because we become more, you know, Saudi Arabia gains more power, and, and that is a bad thing. Uh, Nicholas asked, would you comment on the role of Saudi Arabia? I mean, Saudi Arabia clearly is, is to a large extent behind this. I think they consciously are using the corona crisis to try to, to try to undermine fracking in the U.S., to try to undermine the oil business in the U.S. Um, they don't want the competition. They, they, they love to be the dominant player. For them to extract oil is very cheap, so they can run profitably at a low... But even Saudi Arabia is going to get into trouble if prices stay cheap, because Saudi Arabia is one of the largest welfare states in the world. Uh, they, basically, most of the population in Saudi Arabia lives off of checks they get from the government, from oil revenue. Their budget, they cannot cover their budget with oil at 20 bucks a share. So even the Saudis would like oil to be higher... And the Russians have to have oil higher because Russia Russia's a, is a poor country already would be dirt poor without oil. They have no other industries, really. Uh, so the Russian economy is dependent on this. Really, everybody's incentive is to drive the price of oil up to get to a more sustainable level. But they've let this genie out of the box, in a sense, and it's very hard in a declining demand environment to cut production enough to get the price up. And so, it's it's a mess. And this is what happens when you let Saudi Arabia and Russia, two countries instead of oil companies, you know, control a resource. All right, great. This was fun, Don. Thanks for doing it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Anytime.
0: Good. Good. We'll have to do it again soon. Uh, Thank you guys all for um, for being here we got a, uh, a big live audience. Uh, don't forget to like the show. Don't forget to share it. And those of you, um, you know, who support the show and make it possible through the various ways in which you can support the show, thank you for doing that. Don't forget, those of you who don't yet support the show, you can go to youronbrookshow.com support. Uh, and, of course, thank you for all the super chat uh, questioners and supporters. Thank you, Carlos. Uh, that was very generous and um, great. I will, I will be on again. I don't know either tomorrow or Thursday. Depends on whether I feel tired. Dawn has now made me feel guilty about feeling tired. Um, whether I feel tired or not, but um, you know, as I've told, I've told people here, yeah, I'm working more hours and harder now than you know. Everybody's like they're home, nobody's working. They're kind of on vacation. It's like, it's you know. And dealing with the stock market ain't easy. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Don. See you all soon. Bye.